0: What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by my man, Brandon DeCruz. Brandon, as always, thank you for being back, dude.
1: Absolutely, brother. Always a pleasure to be on with you and to be able to link up and and cover a deep dive on a topic that we both get a lot of questions about. So I always look forward to our opportunities to, to link up and really provide a lot of value to your audience.
0: Likewise, man. It seems like it's actually been quite a while since we've done this. I know uh, you've been recording quite a few podcasts for Tracing Clarity, which, by the way, I love the show so far. Um, definitely to the listeners that haven't checked that out, highly recommend you go check that out. But yeah, it's really been cool to hear you and Jeff like, kind of put your thoughts on the podcast and also hear a little bit more. I really enjoyed that, the first episode you guys did where you talked a little bit more about your personal backstory as well, because there was a lot there that I've never really heard you dig into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No. Well, first and foremost, I appreciate the positive feedback and the support my friend. Um, but yeah, I wanted to open up a little bit because often, you know, over the years I've done close to, I I think I'm going over a hundred podcasts at this point, not including obviously the ones that I now do on my own with chasing clarity, but, um, Generally, people would ask me on for a specialty or for a topic, and, and that's how we linked up. It was about my, you know, my health centric coaching model. That was the first podcast we ever did. And a lot of times, you know, people will ask me about a bio, and and I'll be honest with you, a lot of people say that they're not good at talking about themselves, but I'm I'm seriously not good at talking about a lot of aspects of my life. <laughs> I feel it. And so, you know, I'm so used to I've always spent such a. a concentrated focus on other people being a coach being in this industry so long and always working on other people on the customer service aspect that I I kind of don't really share a lot of my journey a lot of times because I am focused on sharing my client journeys my client transformations and and sometimes I overlook some of my own so actually one of the biggest things that I really enjoy is when we do our coaches roundtable because we'll Mm -hmm. we'll catch up you myself and Jeff on our training, on what's going on diet wise. And, and those are things I generally don't share, but you know, within the first podcast of chasing clarity, you know, Jeff challenged me. He said, listen, I know things about you that I know no one else on the internet knows. I know that you've had, you know, troubles with an eating disorder growing up and that's how you got into nutrition, into training to begin with. I know that you have certain things that have really come to you, like with your, your background, with your father, you know, my dad died with um, complications of diabetes and I, I saw him go down on a, a you know, uh, rough trajectory health-wise and that's why i'm so passionate about health and that's why i always proclaim like a healthy body is a responsive body because i've seen that within my own life within my own body with hundreds of clients and then within my own family and so i really want to open up and, and he challenged me and that's the good thing about you know my my co-host uh jeff black is that he's a close friend he's someone i respect but he also challenges me to get out of my comfort zone because that's something you know a lot of times you know, people ask me on to a podcast. So I kind of skate over like my personal details and I go right into the research or right into the application. And like, I love being able to provide value. But also I think when people do hear, and I did get a lot of positive feedback on that, when people hear that I've struggled with many things that they have, it helps them to know that I can relate to them. And I know my clients feel that because I do personally open up with them, but it's nice to be able to share with a, a larger platform and a larger, a larger audience.
0: Absolutely. And that was actually, that ties in nicely to the question I was going to ask, which is how important do you think sharing that side of yourself is as a coach? Like, do you think that helps you get better buy-in from clients just because they can relate to you more? Um, I think that like, so for example, if you were posting pictures of yourself, like you post like side by side where you're smiling and then there's like a picture of you crying, like sometimes like I think we can take it like, <laughs> I think we can take that a little bit too far but i think like to an extent the being relatable thing is important do you feel like that like helps with the coaching side of things or what are your thoughts on that
1: so my viewpoint on this is a little bit unique i think that from a coaching perspective our focus always has to be on the client first and foremost but yeah. if it's going to be to that client's benefit to open up and share about an experience for instance i work with a lot of Uh, you know, competitors as well as former competitors. I've competed 15 times Mm -hmm. over the years. I know what it's like to be dug out, to be starving, you know, feeling like, you know, you're, you're ravenously hungry to, to be mentally depleted, physically depleted. Uh, I know what it's like to struggle with an eating disorder. I know what it's like to struggle with, you know, health issues. When I have people come to me, they often, you know, when someone comes to me with a health-related issue, you know, whether it be a down-regulated metabolism or they have hormonal issues, thyroid, a lot of times they'll come to me and not knowing my background, they'll say, you know, I know that you're really health-focused and you probably, you know, don't understand what it's like. and, And I stop them right then and there and I'm like, listen, I've been there. I've been with coaches that have had complete, you know, blatant disregard for my health and have, you know, put it, you know, put me onto a program, a protocol. That's why I always say I don't have protocols. I have principles that I manipulate towards the individual client that I'm working with. And I've been there. I've suffered everything that I speak on is something I either integrated to myself, like the energy flux or something like, you know, I'm very passionate about reverse dieting. I'm very passionate about the post diet phase, um, avoiding body fat overshooting because I've experienced those things in myself. I have went through the dirty bulking cycles where I've gained excessive body fat and suffered from insulin resistance and seen all these negative health effects, both on my blood work and then also how I felt about myself, how I felt day to day, you know, you know, getting out of breath, walking upstairs or feeling really uncomfortable in my own skin. So I've been there so I can relate to so many things. So whether it be, you know, my clients are struggling with hunger during a diet where they're struggling with body image. You know, a lot of times people will see, you know, I've been published in in magazines and, and I've done, you know, hundreds of shoots over the years. And they think that just because you might've achieved something that you don't understand what it's like. But I'll tell you personally, I've struggled very heavily with body image, um, you know, issues in the past. And it's only been through my own development of my mind. It hasn't been through my body. It's not like, the more muscular and leaner that I got, the better my body confidence got. It was the more I developed my mindset, the more I developed my intelligence, and realizing I'm more than just my body. I'm both my brain, my body, and all the other characteristics I, I could deliver to people, and everything else that I could provide other people in terms of information, education, application, and then also support that's who I am. And there's it's a multifaceted individual. So sharing those things, I do think it's highly beneficial. And I'll tell you, I've worked with many coaches over the years. I've had many mentors. And those that kind of kept me out at arm's length are those that maybe I learned a lot from them from an information perspective, but I didn't really get the practical application because I never knew, hey, is this guy a researcher or is this guy in the trenches? And there's a big differentiation. Right. So I always say that when it comes to, I consider myself evidence-informed. That means I take the the body of research, I look over it and you know I dive in deep with it and I'm really looking over it with a fine-tooth comb. But evidence-based practice comes from evidence-based medicine and that's a triangle. And, and I consider it almost like a triangle of awareness. It's the body of literature. So what the research says in terms of the most updated and peer-reviewed you know, highest tier of evidence. Then it's also the experiences of the practitioner, so the coach. And then it's also the preferences, the abilities, and the needs of the client. And we have to consider all those things. So really when it comes down to it, it's not just what the research says. It's not just what the literature says. It's not just the experience of the coach. It's also the client. So if I'm able to come to the table with information from the research, if I'm able to come to the table with practical experience, having worked with over a thousand people over the last close to 10 years, and then also I'm able to tell them from my own perspective, hey, I've been in your shoes. I've walked a mile in in where you're at and I've been there. And that's able to help their journey or or allow them to realize that I can relate to them. I do think, A, it helps with buy-in, and then it also helps with the coach-client relationship. And I'm huge on that. I take immense pride that I have people that have opened up to me about things that I will never be able to share on social media. I'll never be able to put in their transformation posts. But they've opened up to me about some of the deepest things within their life. And I always make it clear, listen, I am not. my background is not in psychology. I've taken high-level psychology courses in college, but that's not my background nor my specialty. But I'm here to listen. I'm here to be here for you and then defer you out if it's something that needs further attention. But I do want to be someone that you see as both a coach, a mentor, and a friend. And I really think that that's often overlooked within coaching because it's such a formal relationship where it's always like, you know, they're just, you know, a lot of times we see, uh, I, I see a lot of coaches, they kind of treat it like a dictatorship. It's, it's, I say this and you do that. Whereas it's not a dictatorship, it's a partnership. This is a mutually beneficial relationship where we feed off each other. We work together towards a common goal.
0: I couldn't agree more, man. And I think that's one of, I think we are seeing a big shift in coaching. I think of back back like our high school football coaches, for example, where it was (laughs) basically just like a dictatorship and like, hey, you don't do the right things, we're going to yell at you, right? There's no like motivational interviewing or anything like that. But I think that is such a good, important concept to grasp and be able to meet the clients where they're at and relate to them It's such a helpful thing. So anyway, it's kind of got us off on a tangent there. So the topic today that we're digging into is how to maintain a lean physique year round. So can you kind of preface this? First of all, why do you think this is something that's important to dig into?
1: Honestly, first of all, I think it's it's extremely important because we know that diets work. We know, you know, I've often come on podcasts and I've done it on yours, and I'll say that 95% of diets have been shown to fail, but it's not the actual diet itself. Mm -hmm. Six out of seven people, so 86% of individuals that go on a diet will, in fact, lose a substantial amount of weight. However... 95% of those individuals will regain that weight and two out of three out of those individuals who initially lost weight will actually regain more than they lost in the first place. And that is the recidivism effect. That's what we see post-diet. It's not that we have a problem with fat loss. We have a problem with maintaining fat loss. So when it comes to maintaining a lean, healthy physique year-round, we have to realize that it's not about the short-term solutions towards, you know, an eight week, you know, shred diet or whatever it may be. We have to look at this long-term because if your goal is to improve your body composition, it shouldn't just be for a one day stint. However, if it, if you are, and I want to put a caveat to that because I do work with competitors, I peak them for a particular day or for, you know, a series of competitions on that day, you're going to look your best. You're not going to look like that you know, for, for weeks and months to come. However, for the, the average person that comes to me, for the majority of my clientele, they want lifestyle lean. And I know that's what your audience right. wants. And the biggest question that I get now that I'm post-competition life and I haven't been on a stage for three plus years is how do you stay lean year round? And so I wanted to, you know, open up and share some of the things that I found with both, you know, effective with both myself and with others, because like I said, a lot of times I do cover the topic of fat loss. And this is something we've, we've taken deep dives into fat loss, into metabolic adaptation. We've done uh, episodes on reverse dieting. We've done episodes on avoiding body fat overshooting. And a lot of what I speak on is things to help people avoid the, negative drawbacks of the approaches that they've taken. But at the same time, I'm really focused. I always say, I don't care. You know, it's not that I don't care, but I'm not as heavily focused on what a client can achieve in eight to 12 weeks. I want to see what we can do at eight to 12 months. I want to be able to not only help transform their physique, but transform their life. And within that, Body composition is a huge factor. So I'm improving their body composition, but I'm also improving their relationship with food, their mindset, their approach to other activities, their habits, and their behaviors so that they not only get results, but they can maintain them long-term.
0: Absolutely, man. And I think this is a topic that's important to talk about very frequently. I know, like, for example, when a client hops on board, maybe you work together for let's say four months and it's, Hey, like fat loss phase is going well and like crushing it. Okay. I think I'm good to go off on mill. Right. That to me is always like, like, no, like I want to <laughs> teach you as much as I can. And like, hopefully you're set up for success. But the thing to understand is you've lost that over and over in the past, right? Like the most important time for us to work together is this period after you've lost, where we can actually focus on maintaining and turning this into sort of a lifestyle and like making sure you have a good idea of what that needs to look like. So I think again, this is such an important topic to talk about. Now, As we discussed off-air, I think we're probably going to make this two-part. This first part will be centered around nutrition. Next, we'll dig into training and lifestyle a bit more as well. So to kick it off nutritionally, are there some big rocks that we kind of want to focus on here?
1: Absolutely. So when it comes to the topic of nutrition, which is what we're going to cover, I take what I call a food-first approach to maintaining a lean, healthy physique year-round, And this is because we eat food, not calories or macronutrients. And we have to really make that clear. So I'm going to cover calories. I'm going to cover macronutrients, but keep in mind guys, like you aren't, you aren't eating things in isolation. There's a food matrix that needs to be considered. And that's where we're going to get into the realms of food quality, micronutrition, things of that sort that people often overlook within our space. You know, the first fundamental component that we need to look at and dial in in order to maintain a lean physique is our calorie intake as energy balance is the key determining factor as to whether you will see a physique progress or not. So we have to consider you know, how many calories you consume as well as how many calories you expend because that is gonna be the key fundamental factor to whether you're able to even maintain a lean healthy physique. But once I have determined what a client will need to meet their physique goals from the energy perspective, I then focus heavily on the distribution and the quality of those calories And I do so by first setting the macronutrient composition of the diet, because this is how I kind of think of nutrition. There's these hierarchies that we look at. And we always hear about this. Eric Helms has a phenomenal hierarchy. Dr. Scott Stevenson, same thing. We we have calories. We have energy balance, essentially. We have macronutrients. We have micronutrients. We have nutrient timing. But I kind of like to see, you know, when we see them in that pyramid, we think one has this much greater importance than the other. And I really like to see it as they're, they're all equal pieces of the equation, except for like the supplements and the nutrient timing and a few other things. Those are like the the cherry on top or the icing on the cake. But how I look at nutrition is your calorie intake is what will determine your body weight, but your macronutrient intake and how you distribute your calories between your proteins, your carbs, and your fats is what will determine your body composition. But also what your food quality is like and the micronutrient intake of the foods that you eat or what's gonna determine your health. So whenever I'm creating a nutrition plan or my approach to nutrition, I'm accounting for all three of these components. So from there, the next thing I dial in is the macronutrient split. So keep in mind I'm never looking at these things in these dichotomous relationships. It's never like, oh I'm just focusing on calories. I'll I'll be honest with you, I've never had a client that I just tell them to hit a calorie amount. And never. So I I do know (sighs) some coaches they're like, listen you know all you have to do is hit calories or calories and protein that's just that's not my approach i really do consider the quality and the micronutrient intake and you know that through my own mentorship with you um that i'm very heavily focused on the micronutrients and that comes from my own experience having worked with so many people that do have downregulated metabolic rates downregulated hormonal profiles and so i've learned from their mistakes and it's not that everyone that comes to me comes to me in this position but the fact that i'm able to optimize what they're doing even if they don't have these setbacks It's only making them better. So I really do like looking at things in this broad perspective where let's dial in everything we can, all the big rocks. So the calories, the macronutrients, the micronutrients, and then go from there. So the next thing I do, you know, like I mentioned is I dial in their macronutrient split and I always focus on prioritizing protein first. And then from there, I'll distribute the rest of their calories towards, you know, energy substrates, meaning either carbs or fats. And that's based on a number of factors. People always ask me, well, how many carbs should I eat? Or how many fats should I eat? Or especially after we did a nutrient timing podcast, I really focused heavily on carbohydrates because we were talking about fueling for performance. We were talking about the peri-workout window. So I kept getting asked questions. Well, how many grams of carbohydrates should I eat? I can't tell you guys that. And and we did cover that in the podcast. But it really, when I look at nutrition, it really is in an individualized um, manner. So- you know, I'm making these decisions based on individual factors such as my client's current level of muscle mass and their body fat percentage, uh, their training volume and their frequency, and what phase of training I had them working through. So, is this a higher volume phase? Is this a maintenance phase? Is this a primer phase? You know, so I'm really looking at all these individual characteristics. I'm also looking at their daily activity levels. What is their job like? Are they a sedentary office worker? Or are they a a PT that's loading, uh, you know, taking plates on and off? you know, the gym floor, you know, day and night, what are their preferences like? And then also I'm very big on insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning. So I'm looking at all these things within my intake form. And that's what, you know, really comprises the carbon fat breakdown. So when it comes to carbs and fats, I'm going to give you some broad-based perspectives, you know, from protein, I'm going to prioritize that first and foremost, carbs and fats are really going to differ. And the breakdown that I use with each of my clients is, is different. And so it's always protein high first. And then from there, it's really going to be based on that individual's goals, their lifestyle, and all these other individual characteristics.
0: Okay, absolutely. So within this, we're talking about maintaining a lean physique year round. What do you say it's safe to say from your approach that consistently tracking your food intake is going to be an important part of that? Kind of off topic. we curious for your take there.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I hate to use this cliche setting or um, saying, but what is not measured cannot be managed. So I do think it's important, especially if someone doesn't have, um, and I want to make this very clear. It's not tracking for the sake of tracking. It isn't tracking to get neurotic about numbers. This isn't food by numbers. Like I said, since day one, this isn't about calories and macros. This is about food. We eat food, we don't eat calories and macros. So I don't use an if it fits your macros approach. It's not about hitting a calorie threshold. It is about fueling the body for what it needs to do and having all the necessary macronutrients as well as micronutrients because we need those cofactors to run all the enzymatic processes within the body, which includes hormone turnover, protein transcription and protein synthesis and all other things that are needed both for you know muscle repair as well as cellular repair. So yes, I do believe tracking in some sort of way. So that could be, we're tracking your food intake in terms of your compliance and your body weight and matching up the two. Hey, how compliant are you on the, on the plan? Let's look at a scale from one to 10. And what is your body weight doing to see, are you around maintenance calories or not? Another way could be, we're just weighing food sources. So it's just about food amounts and just making sure that you're, you're consistent within those. And then I do have some people that it is macronutrient based and they're hitting certain specific macronutrients per meal with other thresholds, like a certain amount of fruits and vegetables per day, a certain amount of fiber threshold, a certain amount of protein per meal, a certain amount of protein feedings to maximize muscle protein synthesis, and then some other little characteristics based on the individual. So if someone has a selenium deficiency, maybe I'll have certain supplementation or I'll have Brazil nuts so they can hit that intake. Or if they have certain micronutrient deficiencies, vitamin D, we're going to make sure that they either get sunlight light exposure you know, early in the day, or we are utilizing a vitamin D supplement. So it is going to be person specific, but there needs to be some type of tracking. So this could be, you know, if some people, they just track boxes. So it's, did you hit your steps for the day? Did you hit your nutrition? Did you hit your four servings of protein per day? And it's going to titrate up. And then I do have my competitors. It's extremely dialed in every single meal is laid out. And it's, you know, we're hitting this. And how many times per week did you hit these meals? How consistently were you? How do you feel your digestion and all your biofeedback so that I could really, you know, these are all pieces of the puzzle to really see what's going on in the, the whole uh, totality of, of the situation.
0: I love it. And as you said, the approach can vary by individual. Again, it doesn't have to be one specific one specific strategy for everyone. But I think it's important to understand when we're talking about maintenance it is still going to take after, right? I think a lot of times people look at it or it's easy to look at it as like, okay, the diet, that was hard. But like now I can just go back to kind of coasting where yeah, maintaining is going to be easier than fat loss typically. But again, this is important. This is always something I'm trying to frame with clients. Like, hey, like long-term, this is still always going to take some level of effort, right? There will probably be like, hey, maybe we have to like, limit the intake of certain foods still you're going to have to still say no to things i think like like having that expectation from a star is important so with this kind of protein anchor diet that you mentioned what are some of the primary benefits that you see from taking that approach
1: Yeah. so the reason i focus mainly on protein is because when it comes to losing body fat and gaining muscle mass protein is the most effective nutritional lever that we can pull to accomplish these goals And this is due to the fact that whenever you look at the literature around body weight regulation and how macronutrients affect body weight, uh, body composition, and body fat, higher protein diets are consistently shown to cause increases in energy expenditure, reductions in appetite, increases in satiety, and improvements in body composition, both from a fat loss and a muscle cruel perspective. And research has shown time and time again that when we look at two different dietary approaches for fat loss, as long as those diets are calorie and protein equated, They will have similar, if not equivalent outcomes. So, you know, that's a major focus of mine. But whenever we, you know, when we get away from the protein, that's why I say it's never just like one thing in isolation. It's never just about calories because it needs to be calories, protein, and other things, including micronutrients. Because when we do compare the effects of a higher protein diet compared to another diet with lower protein intake, the higher protein diet has always been shown to have better results in terms of total fat loss and then greater retentions in lean muscle mass. And we actually have certain trials that have been coming out recently that show that having a higher protein diet is one of the leading indicators for fat loss maintenance. And that could be due to a number of, of benefits. So for instance, we know that protein is the most satiating macronutrient, so it helps clients feel fuller for longer, which leads them to be better able to stick to their diet and within their energy needs. And that's especially important um, when it comes to you know maintaining a lean, healthy physique, because you have to realize to stay lean, you're gonna have to have some cognitive oversight, like you were just mentioning, Jeremiah. You're gonna have to have some type of level of control over your intake. It's not like you're gonna be able to eat you know as much as you want, you know, and stay lean unless you're extremely, extremely active. And when it comes to satiety, I believe that the satiety effects of protein are strongly supported, or most supported, by what's called the protein leverage theory. I don't know if you're you're familiar with this theory, but it's essentially a theory that shows that humans and even other animals will eat until they get enough protein and only then will they feel satiated enough to stop eating. So we actually see yes. in research, yeah, we see in research that if you drop the protein percentage of the diet, it'll drastically increase the amount of calories you eat from both carbs and fats as we, we basically were evolutionary del- designed to continue to overeat until we meet our protein needs. But if you were to take and you do a, a crossover intervention and you raise the protein intake of that diet, you'll see that those subjects in that study, they'll have lower hunger scores and then their ad libitum or you know, their, their energy intake that they take into satiety actually drops. And also when we look across the literature, protein intake is the biggest lever that we can pull when controlling for calorie intake and improving body composition. And so from a satiety aspect, that's the number one thing. And especially when maintaining a lean, healthy physique, you got to be able to manage your hunger because that's the number one reason why people fall off diets and why once they get to their fat loss goal, they they rebound because now they're, they're overwhelmed with this increase in hunger and their goal isn't there anymore. And we've covered that in, in previous podcasts, but it's really, if you can manage appetite and manage your hunger, it's one check in the box towards being able to maintain that lean, healthy physique year round. And then protein also has a multitude of other benefits. So protein's been shown to re, you know, even raise your metabolic rate, It has the highest thermic effective feeding, which impacts the energy outside of the energy balance equation. So for instance, we know that protein has between a 20 and 30% um, diet-induced thermogenesis or thermic effective feeding. So basically for every, think about it, like for every 100 calories of protein that you eat, you only net out 70 of those calories so we're essentially absorbing less calories for more food as compared to when you eat an equal portion or equal amount of either carbs or fats and then proteins also and this is something i really see people overlook is protein has many um important benefits and many positive effects to our metabolic health both from an insulin sensitivity and a nutrient partitioning perspective so there was actually just a study that was done last year that was done on protein intake percentage. And what they did was they essentially compared a high protein diet that was 30% of calories from protein compared to a Mediterranean diet. And they looked at outcomes on cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance. So blood sugar management essentially. And so often when people hear about the Mediterranean diet, it's known for being like one of the healthiest diets. You know, it's, it's known for help, helping with longevity. It's filled with great mono and polyunsaturated fats, but it has a lower protein intake. It's about 18 to 20% from protein. And when this particular study, when they had subjects follow a higher protein diet that was at that 30% of calories from protein, as compared to the Mediterranean diet, which they standardized at 20% of protein, the higher protein diet was shown to be superior in terms of the impact on cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance. So it not only helped from a heart health perspective, but also from a better was better from a blood sugar management perspective. And we also see within the context, and you know, I'm very big on insulin sensitivity, We also see that when you start your day off with a high protein meal, it helps to decrease what's called postprandial glycemia in your later meals. So you essentially see less of a dramatic increase in blood sugar and in insulin levels after meals, just from having a high protein meal to start off your day. So if you're someone like in America, a lot of times it's like, we even see this with clients. What's the number one time that someone's going to under eat protein? It's always breakfast. You know, they're grabbing a cereal or they're grabbing a bar and they're not even thinking twice. If you guys can just increase your protein intake to a higher protein threshold, you hit that leucine threshold early in the day. I've seen it with myself. I've seen it with clients. They're more satiated for the rest of the day. They're less likely to overeat and later meals. So it's not like they're having this light, light breakfast and then this massive lunch to compensate for it. But it's also helping with your insulin secretion and with your blood sugar management so that you're less likely to have those dips in blood sugar and feel like hangry. And we also see that eating protein first in a meal helps to mitigate. So this isn't any meal. It's been shown to help mitigate the rises in glucose and insulin post-meal. So this is why, you know, there's many reasons, but, you know, from a body composition perspective, from an adherence and a satiety perspective, and from a metabolic health perspective, in conjunction with the fact that protein is the number one macronutrient for building muscle and recovery, that's why I always center my diets around protein first and from there it's individualized based on carbs and fats based on you know the client that i'm working with
0: okay so from a protein intake perspective how would we identify when we've passed kind of the point of diminishing returns for continuing to increase our protein intake right because typically you'll see here like and i'm not asking for like hey everyone should eat 1.369 grams of protein or anything like that but again like You'll often hear like, okay, we should be aiming for about one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Maybe we can it up with like 1.4, 1.5. Like what would be some science that, hey, we might be past the point where for, from the perspective of maintaining a lean physique, we're past that point of diminishing returns. and these calories would be better spent elsewhere. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's really going to come down to where is this client at? What are they eating currently? What are their calorie needs? So for instance, if I have someone that comes to me and where I'm working with a client and they just finished a contest prep and I'm reversing them out and they're really struggling with hunger, I'm probably going to bump their protein intake up. And I'm going to use that as a lever, as a buffer to help um, offset some of the calorie increases. So maybe I'm going to increase calories by, you know, 400 or I'm going to increase calories by 800 in total, but I'm going to make 400 of those calories from protein. So I'm going to increase their protein by hundred grams per day, spread over five meals. So each of their meals is going to be 20 grams extra. And this is a large, you know, male with that, it's going to be 400 calories, but we know that, that, it's not that protein cannot be stored as fat, but the process of turning you know, um, protein or amino acids into, you know, there are gluconeogenic amino acids, but the process of taking cr- protein into glucose, into the process of denoble lipogenesis is very unlikely because think about it like this. Glucose or carbohydrates, we only see that in fat tissue when they actually biopsy or they take a piece of fat tissue and they look at it in, in lab research, we see that 98% of, of body fat that we have on our body comes from dietary fat that we ate. And less than 2% comes from carbohydrates. Within that, we don't see any protein. So you really have to be over consuming protein in a massive excess to even convert it into fat. And we see in research studies by people like Jose Antonio, that's done multiple overfeeding studies, as well as Bray et al, or, or George Bray, who's done studies as well, that it's very hard to store protein as body fat. So that's going to be somewhere where I use it to modulate you know someone's hunger and to manage it better. Other than that, if I have someone that's on really low calories, and keep in mind, this really isn't the instance for this because we're going to be maintaining a lean physique. So this person's going to be at energy balance or at maintenance calories or higher. But if someone's on really low calories, I might end up swapping out some protein and putting some carbohydrates if they're suffering from a performance perspective, or if they come to me on such low fats that they're not even hitting their essential fatty acid intake from you know an omega three and omega six perspective, then I'm going to make sure. Hey, we got to get some some fattier fish, or we have to get some fish oil supplementation. I might have to take some calories from protein. If you're eating, you know, I've had people come to me. I'll be honest with you, at like four or five grams per kilogram, like excessively high protein intakes, and they're eating nothing. It's a protein sparing modified fast, which can be done in very short periods of time. It's very effective for fat loss. So I have utilized it on myself and with clients, but it's for one to two weeks. It's not for you know two, three, four months. Where they're just simply eating just protein and veggies. And so that's where I'll modulate things. But generally, you know, I'm gonna have people at least at one gram per pound. And then from there, I'm gonna modulate it based on their needs, their level of muscle mass, their satiety, how full, how hungry are they? You know, I'm gonna look at other factors within their diet. And then also, how's your digestion? There are some people that they can eat massively high protein meals. Like I have a guy right now that He needs, or, you know, his, his feedback to me, I won't say a need because we know that protein, we can stimulate muscle protein synthesis for adult male at 40 grams per meal, but you know, 40 grams of a whole protein source, but he really likes 60 grams or more. So I make sure that he hits that threshold to 60, 60 grams per meal. That's what makes him feel satiated. He digests it really well. And that's his preference. So yes, there's a lot of research that says that over 2.2 grams per pound isn't beneficial from a muscle building perspective, but we always have to think about it in the context that there is more nutrition than just calories and macros. There's other nutrients within nutrition and protein is needed for many processes for the, the process of Enzymatic processes. So to to have digestive enzymes, we need protein. For collagen synthesis, we need protein. For, you know, a lot of our protein gets extracted by our gut. About 50% of protein gets extracted by the gut to help with, you know, internal lining and things of that sort. So it's not just, you know, we can't just think about it just in an isolated uh, silo of just muscle. Or just nutrition. We have to think about it from satiety, from a nutrient perspective. What other beneficial nutrients and cofactors are these whole food pro- protein sources? Because we know that animal sources have some of the most nutrient density in terms of vitamins and minerals, iron, um, you know, creatine, all these things that we're not going to get from, say, plant sources. So there's there's various factors to take into consideration.
0: Okay, absolutely. So. Basically to sum that up, it sounds like, hey, there's absolutely nothing wrong with us going a good bit over that, typically thrown out there one gram per pound of body weight mark. But also we want to make sure we're not pushing that so high that we're potentially creating deficiencies with essential fatty acids from our fat intake, or that we're dramatically seeing training performance suffer because we're replacing so many proteins or so many carbohydrates with protein, right? But past that, like it's okay to continue to ramp it up a pretty good bit. So within this model that you have, how important is food
1: quality? okay so this is something I'm extremely passionate about my man um, because you know I, I've got I'm gonna give you some caveats you know the quantity because we always focus on quantity and there's these dichotomous relationships within this industry because we do have you know if it fits your macros camps and people are very concentrated on the quantity aspect and I understand that people like numbers mm-hmm. you know they, they think about food in numbers and I, I don't really like thinking about it like that in a, in a singular context and there's always this debate is it more important how many calories or is it important the quality of calories why are we debating these these topics? Why don't we look at them as both two pieces of the pie? Look at them in equal, equal portions that we should consider and prioritize. So I will give it up to, you know, we have to think about it from a thermodynamics perspective. You know, so the quantity of your calories and the macronutrients you're taking in is without a doubt the foundation to your diet. But this doesn't mean that we should overlook the quality of foods and the micronutrients your food sources contain. And some of the most important aspects of nutrition are your food choices, your, you know, the quality of the calories you're taking in and the choices you make, and then also the micronutrients they provide. And so for me, like food quality selection and composition is one of the largest considerations I make when designing a a diet, especially one focused on getting a client to maintain a lean physique around, because I feel like a lot of individuals neglect the, the importance of food quality. And this could be due to lack of knowledge, lack of awareness, or really not, you know, honestly, sometimes it's it's due to laziness. I see a lot of people that they just really don't want to dive into the nuances, into the details. You know, they don't want to dive into the details and the nuances of nutrition. And I think this is something that's become even more prominent and has become more of an issue in our industry since If It Fits Your Macros became so popular. And really, when I I talk about If It Fits Your Macros, I want to separate it from flexible dieting because they are not one and the same. Just because you do If It Fits Your Macros doesn't mean you're a flexible dieter. Because what we have to realize is if you actually look into literature on flexible dieting, it comes from flexible restraint mindset. And it, it comes from the work of Westenhofer in the 90s. I mean, When you actually look at that literature, it has nothing to do with the diet. It has to do with your mindset around the diet. So you could be following a meal plan and be a flexible dieter. Or you could be following if it fits your macros and be someone that displays what's called rigid restraint or a very dichotomous black and white relationship and and viewpoint on nutrition. So we have to stop with, you know, a lot of people label this as flexible dieting. And so I really want to be very frank when I say if it fits your macros is an issue in our industry and I see it many times over and neglecting food quality is something i see so many guilty of doing including coaches and fitness professionals um because you know from a coaching perspective i'll be honest it'd be so much easier to just give a client a macro plan a prescription for protein carbs fats and maybe calories um, than it is to design a nutrition plan that considers all their needs but often you know this type of just focus on just the numbers aspect you know, leads to not only clients focusing too heavily on that and trying to like play macro Tetris and suffering from decision fatigue, like they're at night trying to equate a meal that's 13 grams protein, 70 grams carbohydrates, and 30 grams fat, and like fucking around with with their kitchen and and getting like this overload on their mind, but it also. It leads, And I'll tell you, because I have a lot of people come to me in this, in this situation, it leads to many micronutrient deficiencies, which lead to them not looking or feeling their best. So we have to realize it's not just about the calorie perspective of the food you're taking in. Calories, yes, it's, it is an important component because it's a, a gauge of energy. But if the source of energy that you're taking in is low quality, it's like putting in shitty gas into a you know, very low grade fuel into a sports car. You're not going to get the same mileage out of your body nor out of that vehicle. And this is why I believe our food choices need to go beyond just calories or just beyond the calories they contain or the macronutrients they contain. We should be looking at all the beneficial micronutrients and cofactors contained in those food sources. Because I'll tell you from my own experience, you know, I have tons of people that come to me and when I run their information through chronometer or I look at their blood work, I constantly see people with deficiencies and it's those people that they have their their macros dialed in. They know exactly down to the calorie. They've weighed and measured every single thing, but they don't have any idea how much, you know, uh, vitamins and and minerals that they have in their diet. So I see, you know, I'll tell you the most common things that I see. I see vitamin D deficiencies, magnesium, selenium, iodine, zinc. Often even people are under consuming sodium, Uh, potassium, especially, Uh, you know, I just looked at a study. Um earlier this week, 93% of the US population is potassium deficient. And so these are essential micronutrients, both in terms of either minerals, vitamins, or electrolytes that we need in the diet. These are necessities.
0: Okay, absolutely. So one of the questions I was gonna ask was your thoughts on IFYM, but I feel like you answered that pretty thoroughly. And it sounds like not necessarily a big fan, but again, we need to make sure that we're separating that from flexible dieting, right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So here's the thing I'm going to give, I'll give it up to them. Like we'll often hear the the argument um, that you can lose weight as long as calories are controlled. And and they're right Mm -hmm. because calories are what control your body weight. And that is, you know, and that is true, you know, but just because something's truthful, doesn't mean it's useful because really, if you're disregarding the quality of the foods that make up your macros, you're going to be, you know, kind of like sliding yourself in terms of the body composition you can maintain because despite the fact that two foods can have equal calorie amounts, they can have drastically different effects on satiety and fullness and can either make the diet easier or harder to adhere to, which is especially an important consideration when it comes to the topic that we're talking about, like to maintain a lean, healthy physique. Like, first of all, the first thing is lead. So you have to manage your appetite. The second thing is health. So if you're disregarding food choice and the quality of nutrients in your diet, you're disregarding the metabolic health perspective. So although I do agree that you can eat whatever you want, For the most part and lose fat as long as say protein and calories are equated i found that too many people take that into like an extreme level so they they end up taking the if it fits your macros into the extremes and this ends up causing them to fail their diets due to their poor selection in in food choice and so this might provide them with these delicious meals that they really look forward to but often if you look at what they're eating like if you actually see like if you ever had a client that comes to you that's new that follows if it fits your macros and you ask them hey Give me an outline. You know, sometimes I'll have clients, and I'll be honest with you, I have clients take pictures of their meals. And it's like this little meal, it looks great. It has Pop Tarts it has ice cream or whatever it may be, but it's such a small portion size and it has such little food volume that it leaves them starving and it makes them more susceptible to of falling off their diet. And I think this is this is actually an issue, and it's been perpetuated because I think a lot of people a lot of times we mimic what we see, especially within this industry. So You know, we find a lot of, you know, I'll tell you myself, I see this often, is I find a lot of if, if it's your macros dieters that will post their delicious, like indulgent meals on social media. And I think it's a bad example for the majority of others who wish to lose body fat or to wish to maintain a lean, healthy physique because- a lot of these people that do if Fit Fit Your Macros, they're only posting about the extremes. They're only posting about the delicious meals they have. They don't, they're not talking about their nutrient quality or their nutrient density or the low-calorie meals that they use to be able to fit those things into their macronutrients. So what we'll see is we'll see the typical pre-workout Pop-Tarts or muffins um, that they eat pre-workout every day or the post-workout uh, you know, burgers and fries and things of that sort. But we're not seeing the rest of their day. And what I always try to get across to clients, because I have clients come to me and say, "Well, why can't I eat this and look like them?" Because you don't know what else they're doing. First of all, you don't know anything about them. And often, if you really look at them and you analyze them, and I've had guys that have come to me. I have clients myself that are at the pro level that post these things because it helps them sell meal plans. It helps them sell macro plans. But I know that that's not what they eat, or that's what they eat a very small portion of the time, and. What we have to take into consideration is there's many variables that go into someone's total daily energy expenditure and how much they can eat and maintain their body composition. And if you really look at a lot of these guys that you, you know, have the most extreme approaches and then still have great body composition, they usually have a ton of muscle mass, so they can diet on much higher calories you know, than the average person that's looking to lose body fat or maintain body fat. They also have years of precise tracking, so they know exactly what they're eating. It's not like they're flying by the seat of their pants. And so they have this precise, accurate tracking history. And so they're able to know how to make these these foods, these fun foods fit their diet better. And they can also get away with more than our average client. And so I really try to get clients to break away from that and really focus on not just the calories and macros and just fitting things in, but what are the other benefits we can get from the foods? What are the other micronutrients? What are are things that are going to fuel your body? What are things that are going to make you feel good from a digestion and performance perspective? And not just look at food from, you know, food is fuel. And food is many other things like it brings us together as a culture and there's so many benefits to food. But if we're only looking at the palatability of foods, like how delicious they are, how tasty they are, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot, both from a long-term and a short-term perspective. So long-term, your ability to adhere to the diet and maintain your physique, but also short-term from your health perspective. And so that's why I really like to build a diet um, or like a foundation to the diet that features high satiety foods. So I want to look at lean protein sources and fiber containing fruits and vegetables and whole grains, which encourage them to be able to maintain their calorie intake and have better compliance overall.
0: Absolutely, man. And I think it's so easy to, I think most anyone can commit to being just really fucking hungry for 12 weeks, right? Like, Hey, here's my diet. I'm going to like hit my calories macros no matter what. But again, when we're looking at it from this perspective of, maintaining a lean physique long-term you're not going to be able to just like deal with constantly being hungry due to just eating all these hyper palatable very energy dense foods year round right like that that is going to eventually become a very important factor to be able to stay satiated long-term right because of course like that's a huge part of why people struggle with overeating so from there how important or like what role does the energy density of the diet play into this model
1: You know, energy density is actually one of my favorite topics. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't, you know, really consider or don't really look at. And I find Mm -hmm. this to be one of the major components. So when I look at my clients or when I look at myself, my own habits, or even those within this space that I know maintain a lean, healthy physique. And I look at certain characteristics. I'm never looking at their macronutrients. I'm never looking at their calories. How much can this person eat? I'm looking at what are certain principles or what are key characteristics that we have in common? And generally it has to do with energy density. And so I find this to be one of the major components of being able to stay lean year round. So just you know, fundamentally, energy density refers to the amount of calories contained in a given weight of food. So it's essentially, it breaks down to how many calories is contained per one gram of that food source. And this is an important component of nutrition especially when your goal is maintaining a lean physique around. And it's another one of those variables that I think that a lot of people, including other coaches, they overlook. And, and they're really like, they're stepping over dollars to pick up pennies by, by going through different rounds. And so the energy density of the diet can have a drastic impact on our appetite, our levels of satiety, and our ability to maintain a calorie intake that's in line with our physique goals. And so, you know, just like an example of this, one of my favorite studies that looks at energy density is actually one by uh, Dr. Kevin Hall who does an amazing amount of work. If you guys aren't familiar with his work, I do You know, very highly suggest looking at his studies because very real world, he does use metabolic words, but he utilizes things where he compares real world perspectives or real world diets and situations. So he did a recent study, just I, I wanna say it was uh, in 2012, uh, 2020, where he compared a loaf, Fat high carb diet versus a high fat ketogenic diet to test energy density and see what better uh, what diet was better at increasing satiety and limiting energy intake when eating ad libitum. So he had people come into a lab and he did what's called a crossover study, meaning that he put each participant that was in the study on one of the two diets for two weeks, then they had a washover period, and then he put them on the other diet. So they were randomized. So you know maybe they were on the a uh, low-fat, high-carb diet for the first two weeks. They had a washout period, and then went on the high-fat ketogenic diet for two weeks, and then vice versa. And at the end of the study, they looked at body comp measurements, including total fat loss, energy expenditure, and then their their total energy intake. And when what they found was, when the subjects followed the low-fat diet, they ended up eating almost 700 calories less per day than when they followed the high-fat uh, ketogenic diet. So this is, first of all, this is a massive difference, especially when you consider the fact that they both eat to fullness in both conditions. So there was no difference in terms of their subjective ratings of satiety and fullness. So in both conditions, they until they were satiated. However, the biggest difference is because the energy density of that diet, because think about it, if you're utilizing a high fat ketogenic diet, fat has nine uh, calories per gram as compared to carbs that have four calories per gram. So that's a major difference between the two. And what this kind of showed was that Um, a non-processed high fiber, low energy dense diet is the best way to control calorie intake while feeling still feeling satiated from your meals. And this is one of the main reasons like this phenomenon where we see that people spontaneously eat less. Like think about it. They went from their normal diet. So for instance, in, in one condition, they could have been the high fat ketogenic diet from there. They were eating 700 calories more per day, but in the next two weeks, they spontaneously lowered their intake by 700 calories. That's a drastic, you know, um, decrease in calorie intake, but their body didn't even pick up on it because of the energy density of the diet. And this is why I really like to place a heavy emphasis on including low energy density food sources like lean proteins or fruits and vegetables within the diet. Because by eating lower energy density, higher volume foods, you're able to better increase satiety because what we have to realize is our gut has these gastric stretch receptors and these, when they're stretched out and they, they are pressed upon from increased volume in our stomach. They signal satiation to the brain. So the hypothalamus receives a signal, listen, you're satiated, you can stop eating. So it, it terminates the meal. And so these types of foods, these lower energy density foods, they generally have higher, higher water content, higher fiber content, and they have more food volume. So they're more satiating per calorie. So sometimes I describe this, you know, energy density as think about the satiety per calorie. Satiety per calorie on veggies as compared to you know, nut butter is gonna be drastically different. If we look at 100 calories from strawberries, as compared to 100 calories from peanut butter, they're gonna be drastically different in terms of the satiety effect they have on you. And so, you know, these types of food, they literally fill your stomach, both literally and figuratively, because they're filling in terms of the the expansion, but they're also filling to the brain. So and, and from there, we even see in research, and this is something I find extremely interesting, is that a lot of people think that it's only about the calories, and that they get filled by how many calories that they have in their diet. So they automatically assume that they're going to be hungry if they're in an energy deficit. So as soon as they go into a deficit, they automatically, it's more of a psychological hunger than anything else. I'm sure you can attest to this, Jeremiah, that you have a client, they're three days into a deficit. They haven't lost any body fat yet, but they feel hungry. And it's usually just because if they swapped around their food sources or they just did portion control and took what they were eating previously and just decreased the portions and didn't change the energy density of the diet, yes, you're eating less. So you have less food volume. It's not really from the calorie perspective. And so we actually have research where they've, they've done these um, these studies where they'll blow up a balloon in someone's stomach, which sounds extremely uncomfortable. But what they see is that it decreases hunger without any ingestion of calories. So literally, they have people come to a lab fasted, where they're hungry. They have them take subjective ratings of fullness, hunger, and satiety, and they blow up this balloon in their stomach. And they have no ingestion of any calories, but they rate that their hunger is substantially less. And this is because satiety is more strongly influenced by a meal's volume or the volume in your stomach than it is by calorie content. And this is why we see that sometimes when you're really hungry, you're actually, where you think you're hungry, you're actually really thirsty. So if you have a diet soda, something filling, where you have a big bottle of water or, or something like that, you'll actually feel less hungry. And that's because your stomach's getting full and it's it's pressing upon those stretch receptors. So you know, from an energy density perspective, this is something I found to be incredibly important because One of the, you know, often the reason people fail to get lean, let alone stay lean year round is because they struggle with the increased hunger and the appetite that comes with maintaining that lower level of body fat. So this is where designing a diet that maximizes fullness and considers the energy density or the satiety per calorie can be really helpful because it helps to ensure a client can actually stick to their plan and consistently eat an amount of calories that's in line with what their body needs to maintain their desired body composition.
0: Absolutely, and I know something we see a lot is clients who walk on board, and it's hey, I eat healthy, I eat all these quality foods, I don't know why I can't lose body fat. And almost always, it's an individual who has like heard a lot about this concept of healthy fats, so thus they're working in like okay, if we look through food blogs, typically they're also not tracking their intake, but often it's like a huge focus on like avocado, olive oil. Lots of mixed nuts and nut butters, where again just the energy density of the diet is so high. And that's like then always one of the first things we focus on is like getting calories out of them, getting protein intake dialed in, and making sure you're eating plenty of fibrous carbs, like you in know, a fat loss phase, so we can make sure that the hunger is in check. So final thing that I wanted to ask you here was just how nutrient partitioning with or within nutrient partitioning and insulin sensitivity, when we're talking about just maintaining the lean physique around, how much are you focused on these variables?
1: Man, I'll tell you, this is something, and you know this personally, this is something I'm really uh, passionate about because it's not just about like, when I talk about a lean physique, I'm talking about a lean, healthy physique. Anyone can starve themselves to get lean. They're not going to maintain it. Or anyone can go on a really restrictive diet and be in an energy deficit and also a micronutrient deficit and get lean, but they're not maintaining that health aspect. So like I always say, a healthy body is a responsive body. So another important factor for maintaining a lean, healthy physique year round, in my opinion is nutrient partitioning and your level of insulin sensitivity. So, you know, nutrient partitioning essentially refers to what tissues uptake and absorb the calories and nutrients you consume. So if you're someone that has good nutrient partitioning, you're going to be more likely to transport and store the calories you eat into muscle tissue or like into muscle glycogen or into liver in terms of liver glycogen whereas those with poor nutrient partitioning are more likely to store the calories that they take in and adipose tissue so they're putting it more into body fat storage so they're, it's more difficult for them to liberate that body fat and so insulin sensitivity plays within that because it plays a massive role within nutrient partitioning as those who have great insulin sensitivity have the ability to uptake more glucose into their muscle cells so that that glucose is actually partitioned into muscle and stored as muscle glycogen rather than going and getting shuttled into fat tissue. And we also see that those that are muscular, they have better insulin sensitivity and they also have better nutrient partitioning because just the fact, you know, just the active resistance training increases both nutrient partitioning and insulin sensitivity because it uh, it increases glute four translocation, which is essentially our body's ability to open up the, the cell without the presence of insulin and shuttle those nutrients in there. However, you know, and I've seen this in, in my own personal practice when I have someone come to me and they have poor insulin sensitivity or they have elevated blood sugar levels, you'll see that they have worse nutrient partitioning and you know what i'll see is they're less likely to get pumps in the gym so they're flatter or they're retaining more water they're you know they're more uh they have more water retention especially in the abdominal region they're more likely to store subcutaneous body fat and so with that we have to realize that insulin sensitivity starts at or insulin resistance starts at the level of the muscle and at the liver so this results in your body being unable to uptake and and store calories in those compartments so now it doesn't have those those compartments to store they don't have muscle and they don't have liver so what else do you have you have body fat tissue so it's going to be you know it's going to leave the only option to being that we start shuttling calories into body fat storage and that's where it's going to get deposited and if you're not in you know we're th- thinking about the fact that we're in a, we're maintaining a lean healthy physique so these people aren't in the deficit so they're not going to be losing body fat so now they're partitioning more of the calories that they're taking in into body fat. And actually, negatively impacting their body composition, and that's not only going to hurt them from uh, body composition and like their look perspective, but it's also going to help. Perf- it's going to hurt performance and pumps in the gym, and then also their metabolic health. So these are all things that we need to take into consideration. It's a well-rounded approach to maintaining both a lean and healthy physique, so that you can only, not only main, you know attain the physique of your, your dreams or of your desires, but also maintain it long-term.
0: Absolutely. So then when we're looking at that, and I know a lot of this, a lot of this model ties together, right? Where to an extent, this is going to be impacted by like food quality, for example. But when we're talking about, and I also, we have a whole podcast on nutrient partitioning. <laughs> so within that, you probably also go back and listen to that. But are there like some main factors that you want people focused on here to make sure that nutrient partitioning and insulin sensitivity are staying in a good place outside of what we've already discussed?
1: Yes, yeah, So there's, there's many factors that can influence nutrient partitioning. So number one driver, of that is going to be resistance training. So it's going to be the number one way to absorb glucose. Think about it. Anytime you increase muscle mass and that comes through the, the active resistance training, you're essentially increasing the glucose sink. So muscle is, is essentially a glucose sink. It's going to help you to be able to burn through more glucose as well as store more glucose. So the more muscle you have, the more glucose, the more glycogen you can actually store. So that's going to be the number, the number one and number two things, your resistance training activity as well as your level of muscle mass. So increasing either of those are gonna help with nutrient partitioning and gonna help with insulin sensitivity. From there, we're gonna to have to look at daily activity. So we know that just the active movement is gonna also increase glucose for translocation. And it also, like things like post-meal walks, they're gonna help with lowering the, um, the rise in insulin and blood glucose after meals. So they're gonna help with postprandial glycemia. And so you're gonna have less of a dramatic increase in blood glucose, which is gonna also make sure that your body doesn't have to over secrete insulin. So it's going to keep you more insulin sensitive. So you're going to be increasing nutrient partitioning and helping with insulin sensitivity within that. Another thing, our goal is to maintain a lean, healthy physique. That in and of itself is going to help with you maintaining better insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning. Another aspect, protein, protein helps with metabolic health, with insulin sensitivity and with nutrient partitioning, because it's going to help with, you know, when we're taking in say post-workout, we have an increased uh, sensitivity to amino acids and to glucose. So it's going to help with the shuttling of those amino acids and glucose into muscle tissue. So there's various aspects, both from a nutritional and then also from a lifestyle perspective. But then there's also things that we're going to cover on the next podcast, which would be sleep, would be stress management. All these things play a factor into insulin sensitivity and into nutrient partitioning. But really, the the big rocks of this, if you're maintaining a lean, healthy physique and you're managing your stress well and you're having a nutrient-dense diet, you're having all the necessary cofactors, your chromium, um, your B vitamins, all these things that are needed for the process of glycolysis and for um, uptaking glucose, you're going to be more insulin sensitive than someone that isn't paying attention to those variables.
0: Absolutely. Okay, perfect. And I think that's a nice summary. Again, I know we've talked about this topic a lot in the past, and I'm excited to dig more into those lifestyle factors along with the trading variables in our next episode here. So, before I let you go, any concluding thoughts around the nutrition component of maintaining the lean physique year round that you kind of want to leave the audience with?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the number one things I would like to hit on that we didn't hit on was the fact that a lot of times, you know, I did hit on the calories and and, um, macros aspect, but also, Another big suggestion for maintaining a lean, healthy physique is just, I don't want to say eliminating, but limiting your processed foods. And the reason I say that is because it's so easy to um, essentially over-consume processed foods. And I really see that a lot of people, they have an issue with maintaining compliance to their diet because they're including a lot of processed foods into their diet and it's causing them to overconsume or, or deal with hunger and struggle with their appetite, and this is another. You know, Kevin Hall has another study that's phenomenal on the the. Um, he did a, a randomized control trial looking at unprocessed versus processed foods, and yet again, this was another um, crossover trial. So he essentially put each uh, participant on two weeks of either diet, and what his research group found was that even when they provided subjects with meals that matched for calories, for protein, for fiber, um, they uh, equated for carbohydrates, fat. Um, I even think sodium. So everything was equated when a subject was able to eat ablimatum or to satiety, you, um, with their own fullness factor, essentially utilizing a meal that was comprised of just whole foods, they ate 500 calories less per day. However, when they were in the processed food condition, they were eating 500 calories more per day. And so in the processed food condition, these people, it caused these people to overconsume calories and then they gained body fat and weight. Whereas when they were on the unprocessed diet, they ate 500 fewer calories per day and actually lost body fat without trying. And what's interesting about this is that subjects reported that the diets were equal in taste, but the one major difference that they saw in in, in the researchers observed, it wasn't something that was self-reported by the subjects, but it was something that they were in a metabolic ward. So uh, researchers had them on video camera and then also observed them in person was that processed foods cause us to eat quicker. They're easier to digest. They're, they're really easy to consume very quickly. Like think about the fact of like, say that you were to take an apple versus apple juice, you're going to consume apple juice much quicker. Or if you're going to take, and it's an ounce of almonds or an equivalent level of uh, peanut butter, you know, it's going to be two different things. There's food processing within the peanut butter. You're going to take that skippy down much quicker. And also you're going to be more likely to overeat because you're going to get less of a satiety response. So really when we can, if we can leverage whole foods, that's another huge component to the diet that I find that a lot of people could really benefit from, even if they're, they're not leveraging, like they want to include some tasty foods into their diet and they want, you know, they don't want to always consider like the energy density. We'll just look to utilizing more unprocessed whole foods rather than processed foods, because that's another thing that I feel that a lot of times when people get out of the diet, they try to fit all these fun foods into their diet. And it happens to do with a lot of processed foods, but even just switching out, you know, even there's, there's a study on peanuts. It's, it's actually really interesting. They looked at a diet comprised of all the fat in their diet from peanuts. It was pretty much all fat. So they were eating 80 grams of fat per day and 75 grams out of those 80 grams was from either peanuts, whole peanuts, um, or peanut butter or peanut oil. And they found that the biggest thermic effect of feeding was from the peanut itself. The peanuts had a 17% 17 higher thermic effective feeding than the other two conditions. So not only were you able to eat the same amount and get more satiated because there were higher ratings of satiety from the the same source of peanuts, so 75 grams of fat from peanuts, but also they netted less calories. So that's a way, if you really like a certain food, you really like almonds, but you know that almond butter is your trigger, just stick with the whole food source. You know what I mean? And just try to really leverage the fact that we want to stay in energy balance or we want to control our calories. We still want to enjoy ourselves and have foods that we like, but also try to get more on uh, nutrient dense, whole food sources in your diet as the foundation. And if, if at that point you hit all the big rocks, you get all your micros, you get all your macros, your, uh, your calories are in check and you can still fit things in by all means, feel free to do so. But that shouldn't be the foundation and the primary focus of your diet. It should be on uh, nailing the big rocks first and fitting in the smaller pebbles later.
0: I love it, man. I think for sure, one of the biggest takeaways from this episode was just how important food quality is for maintaining year round. And again, not necessarily looking at your food selection when you're quote unquote off the diet is something that's dramatically different from something when you are on a diet, for example. So before I let you go, dude, anything else, anything new you have going on that you want to plug?
1: Um, well, first and foremost, this is going to be actually, I had plugged this on this podcast before, but I do want to plug uh, my new podcast, chasing clarity, health and fitness podcast guys. Uh, an episode goes out every Friday at 12 PM Eastern standard time. So please join myself and, uh, Jeff Black, my co-host. Um, other than that, you guys can reach out to me at Brandon DeCruz underscore on Instagram. And another thing is this should come out before the next PC. So the PC Nashville, both Jeremiah and I will be out there, uh, you know, celebrating both my birthday as well as the conference. And then also, you know, anyone that listens to our podcast that wants to get together, this is an amazing event. It's held in Nashville. It's gonna be an Iron uh, House Strength and Conditioning, which is my buddy Jeff's gym. It's a phenomenal environment, whether you're a fitness professional or you're someone that you're just a fitness enthusiast, feel free, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. This is a conference and a seminar that I've presented at myself. This particular occasion, I will not be presenting at, but it's a phenomenal resource. Jeremiah, this is going to be a second one yet. This is going to be my third, and it's a phenomenal um, opportunity, not only from a learning perspective and an educational perspective, but also from networking perspective. So I would love if any of you guys uh, that listen, that I've interacted with over the the years that Jeremiah have been doing this podcast together, you guys reach out and uh, join us down there.
0: Absolutely, and I I can't second that enough. Like uh, the first PC I took so much value from. Just such good people there. I know at this event, all the homies are going to be there. Jeff Haynes going to be there. Tristan Winters is going to be there. Michael Clifford is going to be there. Okay. And again, just such good people, man. It's such a so much different than so many events I've been to where it's not about here's how you make 10k in the next month, but rather it's here how here's how you are, can actually be a very good coach and give your clients a better service, which it's really what it's all about. Um, but as always, man, I will link all that up in the show notes, both your podcast and where you can check out more about the PC. But as always, dude, thank you for being here, and we'll catch you guys again soon.